Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, one of the preeminent songsmiths in all of popular music. He has written or co-written a whopping 80 top 40 hits with a veritable who's who, including the likes of Kiss, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, Ricky Martin, Katy Perry, and many more. Now he is taking a well-deserved victory lap with a career-spanning album entitled Desmond Child Live. Hello and welcome, Desmond Child. It's so great to be here. Thank you for being here. You came up in uh, the ordinary context of conversation on the very last episode of this show. Uh, in what context? Uh, the context of rat. Rat? Yes. Oh, my God. We were talking rat. Loving you's a dirty job, and I'm the man to do it. I'm not just saying this I'm, I'm, because you are here. Definitely my favorite rat song, personally. And I'm listening to it, and I've enjoyed it since it came out. And in some time in the last five or six years, I'm listening and I go, this kind of seems like it was supposed to be an Aerosmith song. No, I co-wrote those songs with them from scratch. Okay. But, you know, it was at a time when a lot of those bands had a kind of similar kind of bluesy, rock, edgy, scratchy sound. Uh-huh. So um, it worked out. Yeah, no, it worked out very well. Okay, so I was, it's a beautiful chorus. On, I'm, uh, well, it's a great chorus, but it's uh, the bridge is... That's pristine. That's that to me. That's like the Desmond Child thing. I think of that. I think of uh, the Alice Cooper stuff. Right, a uh, poison. Well, mm-hmm. we we co-wrote a, an album together that I produced called Trash, mm-hmm. and the lead single on that was called Poison. Yes. And so one of the great things that happened recently is that I um, have my own record deal. Uh, at BMG and put out a live album called Desmond Child Live, but I'm going to be dropping new songs into the space of music. I don't even know what to call it. And uh, Alice Cooper is my first featured guest. So we have a new song coming out together. And I know, at least I have, I'm led to believe by Wikipedia, that you're doing some stuff with the act with whom you got started. Desmond Child and Rouge. Yeah, right. Uh, my, my group, um, you know, we never really broke up because, you know, they're like my sisters, the the three girls, Miriam Valley, Diana Graselli, and Maria Vidal. And uh, we decided to re-release our original two albums. And um, they're remastered. They sound amazing. And we're going to be putting out new music, three new songs, and also a remix of Our Love Is Insane dance remix, like sped up, but like pumping so good. It's It's awesome. I was working on it last night with the mixer. It's so good. I'm trying to figure out the exact timeline of where that project is in regard to when I know you're friendly with Paul Stanley, but where the collaboration with Kiss happens. Where was Desmond Child and Rouge at that point? Desmond Child and Rouge had just gotten signed to um, Capitol Records, and we were making our first album and performing still at a place called Tracks, which is an underground was an underground club on West 72nd Street between Columbus and Broadway. 
And Paul Stanley came to see us perform in the same night that George Harrison did. So George Harrison was in the audience and Paul came around backstage and uh, just we made friends and he said, hey, we, we should try writing a song. So I, of course, said yes and uh, went to SIR Studios where Kiss was rehearsing. And during their lunch break, everyone disappeared and Paul and I just went over to this piano, pulled off the cover, sat there together and we wrote, I was made for loving you. And the legend has it. It was written incredibly quickly. You seem to be verifying that part. Mm -hmm. Also, the story is out there that it was sort of a a bet, like a we can show you how easy it is to write a hit disco song. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Not from my perspective. Maybe that was kind of like the attitude or whatever, Mm -hmm. because Gene never liked the song. It was not rock enough for him. Right. And at that time, I was experimenting with dance beats. I wouldn't call it disco, but it was, you know, we were rock guitars, storytelling, very grand theatrical ideas that were not coming from R&B. And um, that was that came in line because I bought a little drum machine, so I was writing songs to a beat. That was way before loops existed. Oh, This is 1978. Right. And uh, so that's how that song came to be because I kind of, you know, talked him into the idea of doing this four on the floor and then these big rock guitars. Yeah. And so that's what the signature sound is of that song. It's funny because it was. I remember when I was a kid and people go, you know, Kiss did a disco song? You go, no, it's impossible. And this is before YouTube and you finally see the video and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this even happened. And it is, I mean, it is a kind of a disco song, but it starts this whole thread that goes into rock. Like I have the tiger has a, right. it's not double time but the four on the floor thing nobody yeah. called survivor a disco band so it sort of just got integrated into a place where rock could also go well i think also the song had a lot of motown elements you know oh sure like i was made for loving you baby kind of had this like a kind of a, i'll be there da, 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 da. it kind of had that same kind of kind of triumphant uh dramatic uh feel Right. That that people were associated with Motown, but that that wasn't like what was in our heads. You know, we were like just thinking about doing big arena stadium rock and things that are melodic stick in people's heads. Sure, that's worked out pretty well for you. Where I'm sure you've thought about this, where do you think your career would have gone had that collaboration not happened? Well, I don't know. Maybe I would have worked harder on my own career. <laughs> but because of that, I started getting calls from bands. So I, Paul Stanley gave my number to John Bon Jovi, and I went to New Jersey to write at this little wooden house at the end of a cul-de-sac that was on the border of a ginormous brown marsh, like where the Sopranos like bury people. Yep. <laughs> Dump people. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I'm with from the, New Jersey. I know many with, such marshes. With, with, and in the distance, like Emerald City was like big oil refinery. Mm-hmm. It must have been the most toxic place to grow up ever. And uh, that's where we wrote our first song, uh, You Give Love a Bad Name. I want to talk to you about that. I want to actually back up a little bit. Before that, I read again on Wikipedia about you having a bit of an apprenticeship with uh, a songwriter that I'll admit I'm, I was not familiar with by name, with Bob Crew. Yes, Bob Crew is a legend. Mm-hmm. He you know, started out in the early 50s. He wrote his first hit at age 18, a song called Silhouettes on the Shade. Silhouettes, 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 silhouettes. And he was a very handsome man you know just looked like robert redford he was a model he came from a very kind of blue blood 
um, patrician, you know, New Jersey family. And um, he got in with the Brill Building, and he was writing over there and working with Jerry Wexler. Mm -hmm. They were uh, going up and down the East Coast in Bob's little top-down, you know, whatever it was at that time, and uh, going to radio stations and playing their demos. And so they would say, oh, this is our new single. And they say, could you come on, just play, play one time. If the phones lit up, they went and print, printed copies. And they became like the first independent promotion guys. So eventually, you know, Jerry Wexler teamed up with Ahmed Erdogan and um, they created uh, Atlantic Records. Yeah. And Bob went on to produce and write with uh, The Four Seasons. And so if you see the movie or the the musical called Jersey Boys, Bob is, you know, the very flamboyant, you know, character that uh, becomes their Svengali. And they they wrote incredible songs together that still to this day, I mean, you know, they had so many hits for Jersey Boys, they had to leave off 28. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I saw Frankie Valli a few years ago now, and the early stuff, like the Four Seasons stuff, is just down to a, a medley in his set. And you, he does it, you go, oh my God, you just did like seven hits, dude. Are you sure you got enough of a set? But sure enough, just the solo yes. Frankie stuff. There's yes. a lot of stuff there. So, um, you know, Bob was a mentor to me and I spent two years writing songs with him and he taught me everything I know about songwriting. So what is that? I'm so curious about this. I am a songwriter. It's it, above all else, like that's my, my passion. And it's famously something you can talk around and talk about, but like most kinds of writing, it's arguable whether or not it can be taught. Like, could you write a book? All modesty aside, you've written a lot of hit songs. You obviously have a method. Could you write a book that anybody who writes songs could read that would make them better at it? What is the craft, really? Well, there are a lot of, you know, kind of simple rules that I followed. And Bob taught me these things. And I don't know if I want to give the competition <laughs> the information. No, I'm just kidding. Because yeah. I do a lot of master classes and, and um, at colleges and high schools. Mm -hmm. And I... I teach people. A lot of people run up to me and they said, it was that talk that you gave that taught me how to write songs. And now look at me. Guy walks up with like five number ones. You know, he said it was that turning point because I, it was kind of like coming from a different place. Okay. You know, you want the secrets? Please. Okay. First of all, Bob wouldn't even start a song unless there was a strong title. Because he said it's all in the title. Mm -hmm. So he taught me how to write self-contained titles that the songs almost wrote themselves like you give love a bad name because that had tension of opposites love and bad and so uh i hate myself for loving you right um, how can we be lovers if we can't be friends heaven's on fire so um all of those those songs i would bring to the table that had this tension like the titles like mm -hmm. were movies onto themselves. They right. could be brands. They could be the titles of books. And so then you d you work backwards. You write the chorus first because the, 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 the title will tell you how fast it needs to go, what range it needs to be sung, how much, how much it, sh how, how softly or how intensely it should be sung to bring out the meaning because it's all about bringing out the meaning of what you want to say. He said, you don't open your mouth to speak if you have nothing to say, right? Why should you open your mouth to sing if you have nothing to say? So I, I followed that in, from, from the 
day that he gave me that that precious information, I started having big hits with everybody in 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 the business, because there were other elements involved, which was also um, looking at the artists you're writing for and really understanding their archetype. Right. I want to ask you about this. So you know, from the beginning of time, we you know in language and in uh, our oral history. Uh, there have always been archetypes. There's been, you know, the warrior, uh, the the vestal virgin. There's been the witch. There's been the devil. There's been all these things. And if you follow Greek Roman mythology, and then the the pantheon of Christian saints and the the Bible, and then eventually characters in books, and then kings and queens and their courts, and then you have um, movie stars that started to appear, like Rudolph Valentino. That's where the first rock stars happen, where massive amounts of people would like turn up if they were going to appear, just be, just to take a look at them. So um, the studio system in Hollywood really cranked out that that feeling, and it was really brought to a fore with Frank Sinatra and then Elvis Presley. Then came the Beatles. So you you start to see that certain characters I see are ones that are hardwired in our system. So when you when you recognize that that archetype, you know exactly what they should be singing. And we can recognize them and then we'll buy it because it's safe, it's close, we know it. Even if it's an evil character like Alice Cooper or Ozzy Osbourne, mm-hmm. the darkness, there's darkness inside of us and we love it when they're the the worst possible things that they could say. We love it. Right. And then, but you could never hear somebody who's like a warrior type, a working class hero like John Bon Jovi sing like those dark lyrics. I mean, it would be just foolish. But you really buy his message of hope and struggle and fighting and winning. Right. So we have to have all of these things because it satisfies something deep in our psyche as we make sense, like dreams make sense of our real lives. And so, you know, once I could size someone up, I started really trying to draw out from them what was their inner message. And it usually would line up, you know, with the kind of outer image Mm -hmm. and the inside soul of who they are. George Lucas talks in a very similar manner about making Star Wars, about these Jungian, I mean, it sounds crazy, you're talking about yes. popcorn movies and, and pop music, but these these archetypes yes. that, as you say, are hardwired into every story in every culture throughout the ages. Yes. There's a reason why these types of characters come back. They stick. Again and again. Yes. Right. And so, why we love Darth Vader, even though he's the bad guy. Et cetera, so et cetera. I'll give you a test. Like yeah. Medusa. Right. Snakes on the head. Mm-hmm. Kind of evil. Sure. Who's that today? Snakes on the head. Who wore like meat suits? Oh, like Lady Gaga. Exactly. Uh-huh. She's not the the bestial virgin. She's not like Venus mm-hmm. coming out of a clamshell. She's Medusa. She actually wears stuff on her head that looks like snakes. That's a hardwired archetype. And Madonna was along the same lines. That was the first person I thought of. Well, Ma- Madonna and then uh, Lady Gaga took it even like way further. Sure, sure. In many you know, ways, that you just developed you know, on that. And um, so th- there you have it. And so once you see that, even in a new artist, you start to see, well, who is this person? Are they good? Right. Are they bad? Are they of the light? Are they, you know, what should they be singing about? And um, I have this young artist that I've, been encouraging 
in Nashville. His name is Jake Johnson. And, um, you know, he doesn't have a deal yet or anything like that. He's six foot six or something. He looks like a ginormous Frankenstein, you know, like, I mean, he's really good looking, but it's dark, you know, kind of thing coming from him. And, um, when he first came to me, he was writing like very happy, like Bon Jovi songs, you know, like very like, and like completely wrong for his archetype. I said, why are you writing these songs? What do you really want to sing about? And he said, well, I want to sing about this and that. I said, well, then do it. And he's just getting better and better. And he's developed his, you know, Jake Johnson and the Jake J and the Killjoys. And uh, if you look at his artwork and everything, skulls and all this darkness, and it's satisfying something deep in him, that's his journey, mm-hmm. you know, and he's the sweetest, kindest person. So just like Alice Cooper, the sweetest, kindest, most empathetic person. But his character on stage right. serves humanity. Right. And obviously there's an element of him that is that or relates to that or is the mirror image of that or something or else he wouldn't mm-hmm. have been able to sell it to to the masses. I found myself thinking about along these same lines, uh, listening to I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett again. Mm-hmm. What? So let's just say you get a phone call. Joan Jett wants to know if you have any songs or wants to write or whatever. Now you got to sit down and think, well, what is Joan Jett and what is Joan Jett now in 1989 or 90? You know, what goes into thinking about making a song for Joan Jett? What's her archetype? What is she musically? Well, first of all, she has a very strong archetype. Her name is Joan, like Joan of Arc. So she had a very masculine persona, like Joan of Arc. She was fighting for truth. And that's how Joan is. She's so pure, mm-hmm. you know, and she's never compromised her integrity ever. That would, you know, she just wouldn't do it. And she's also extremely beautiful, like a female Elvis Presley. So with all these boyish qualities and this beautiful face, um, you know, she inspired me. And she also, you know, was coming from a kind of girl group uh, of the 60s kind of thing, you know with the group that she was in and uh, the runaways and um, you know, just they had like girls on the street, like street gang kind of thing. So she always, I mean, she was always like, so like gorgeous when she came in, like, but like the little handkerchief around her, every single thing about her, even though she looked like a ruffian was like, so like precise. In fact, she's, I think she's a Virgo. So she would write out lyrics. If she made one mistake, tear up the page, start over again, like a scribe and beautiful handwriting. So when I got together with her, I had this idea for, uh, I came with the title, I hate myself for loving you because it was like, you give love a bad name. It's like in, you know, with the opposites. And she says, I, I, I can't sing the word love. I said, but you sing it and I love rock and roll. I said, she said, well, I didn't really write that song and it was a hit by mistake. And, uh, but you know, I'm good with that song, but I don't want to sing any more songs with the word love in it. And so by the end of the session, she was singing, I hate myself for loving you. Can't break free from the things that you do. And, um, it really worked for her because, you know, she was like, um, tough in it, but vulnerable at the same time. A little bit more vulnerable than she had been. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I just loved the song. It just had such a street quality to it. And girl group, New York City, street corner. Yeah. You know. And perfect marriage of material to to perform. Exactly. So the song, like, after not having a hit for eight years, 
broader, like completely back. Because when somebody get, bring, comes to me with a done image, like completely knows who they are themselves, I can really be useful. What about the opposite? You must have come across some artists who were talented but didn't necessarily have uh, a, a, a thing that you could describe easily. Well, those usually get dropped by the label. Right? Because not everyone can be an icon. Not everyone can be a big, big star. All these things have to be a confluence of elements, you know, to put somebody, you know, into that pantheon of the greats. And so I've been lucky. I've been able to work with people like Cher yeah. and Ricky Martin. Yeah. Well, talk to me about Cher first. So after the success with Kiss, there's uh, Billy Squire. You keep doing the Kiss thing. I know Cher is a big deal in your life from the time you were a yes. kid. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, when I was a, a teen, like she was a, still a teen, you know, so when I was 13, she was like, you know, 16. She was already famous. And so I had pictures of her all over the walls. I didn't know whether I wanted to be her or sleep with her. I think but, a lot of people. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> there's a lot of share inside of me. And so um, I actually got to work with her, mm-hmm. which was a thrill of a lifetime. And... um you know, she hadn't made a record again in like eight years. She had gone to Vegas. Everyone said, she's a Vegas act, this and that. But she had something in her and she started making movies. And she had an avalanche of successful films. Yes. And one after the other, she won the Oscar for Moonstruck. I mean, so at the same time, we were making her comeback record. And so because of all the, you know, success I had with Bon Jovi and other people, I started bringing them in to the share process. So I had this idea to cut my favorite uh, Sonny and Cher song called Bang Bang. But the original song, you know, uh, only had like, was two minutes long. So I went to Palm Springs and met with Sonny Bono and he actually wrote me an additional verse so I could extend the song. Isn't that cool? Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's funny. So he was uh, a willing participant. He was happy to- Yeah, very happy. And he was super nice even though, you know, we were- probably very opposite ends of the of the spectrum politically uh, and yes. i think that was a problem for them too also because mm-hmm. she's way, like the most liberal person ever i've noticed that on her twitter <laughs> yes <laughs> and so he was coming from a totally different place which is kind of weird cuz his image was like a hippie right you know with beads and bangs and you know yeah. and you know those vests and you know bobcat vests uh, but you know so i got bon jovi the band to play bang bang you know so it had a totally different feel it's like da 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 owl moon you wore six you know played on horses made of sticks and so she sang it again and it was so glorious it was so much so great and uh we wrote um a song uh for her called we all sleep alone mm-hmm. And she just killed that one. So I, I was producing, you know, various things, uh, just like Jesse James, which I co-wrote with um, Diane Warren. Mm-hmm. And um, you two are friendly. Yes. I don't know why I expected there to be a rivalry between no, there is. the two. She makes me great. Uh huh. Because every time I see her have a success, I work harder. And likewise, I'm sure. Well, I don't think she fusses about me, I but <laughs> you know, she's on her own path. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I mean, I adore her and we're texting like almost every day, some dirty joke or something. That's great. <laughs> some what? nasty rumor or something. 
Uh, but uh, she inspires me because she never quits, and neither do I. And I, I love her music, and I love her energy and her passion. When she sits down to sing her own song, like when she's pitching a song to somebody, and with her scratchy voice and all that earnestness, you can't help but get goosebumps all over your body because it's for real. You mentioned Bon Jovi a, a couple times. Let's talk about them. I, I thought I, I pride myself on knowing these sorts of things. I did not know that You Give Love a Bad Name was not a second recording of a song, but a new version of an existing song that you'd done with another artist. Yes, and there's a great story about that because I had written a song uh, commissioned by Jim Steinman, who had produced Total Eclipse of the Heart for yeah. Bonnie, Bonnie Tyler. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, this is what I want. I want the verses. I want it to be a, a song about androgyny. I want the verses to be like Tina Turner. I want the B section to be like the police. And I want the chorus to be like Bruce Springsteen. That's a lot. You know, so I totally delivered a song called If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man. And uh, the verses go, How's it feel to be a woman? How's it feel to be a man? Are you? Are we really that different? Tell me where we stand. And the B section goes, I look at you, you look away. Why did you say we're night and day? Really like the police. And then the chorus comes, If you were a woman and I was a man, would it be so hard to understand that our hearts are hot and we do what we can? If you were a woman and I was a man. So it came out and was only hit in one country, France. It's like huge number one hit in France. So I was really disappointed because, you know, I knew that was a hit chorus Uh and I had solely written it. So I felt free to say, okay, you guys, I have this title. You give love a bad name. I have this uh, hook uh, and, you know, they loved it. And then I told, uh, because that one had like the the, the verse was do, 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 like Billie Jean and all that under if you were a woman. Sure. So then, of course, that was you know, the melody was so against those chords was so hypnotic and so yearning. It became a hit for you give love a bad name. Now, recently I got wind that there was a song being written. Um, and I can't say the title of it, but it, it was an interpolation. It's an interpolation of if you were a woman, I was a man and it's going to come out. It's going to be so big. So it's a female artist from Europe mm-hmm. and she sang it and it's so good. I don't want to give anything away, but yeah. um, it's the same melody again. And you can feel how the power of it. So it starts out the same, like all three songs start out a cappella with a choir, you know, with him, he just sang it by himself, but no band. That's Shot right. The, cor- the, the chorus. Heart. Yeah. 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 And the, if you were a woman was a big choir. Mm-hmm. So this new one is really an interpolation of the very first version of that song. I know that sounds all very kind of nerdy and music, music-y. No, but uh, this is why I want to talk to you. That's the that's the that's the way it goes. And then that, a very interesting uh, interpolation is "I Hate Myself for Loving You," the Joan Jett song. It was turned into first the Monday Night Football theme, and now it's the Sunday Night Football theme. That's right, and it's the same exact melody. And you'll see. Um, Carrie Underwood sing it. Well, at first it was Faith Hill, then it was Pink, and then uh, Carrie Underwood, she went sideways and did some country song and the fans weren't having it. So after a few years, they went back to the original theme and she's singing and Joan Jett's playing guitar. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. So in the intro of that, of that, of every game, yeah. you'll see Carrie Underwood with Joan Jett playing guitar, that theme. Let me ask you, somebody, I think it was Cheap Trick, talked about how when their hit songs were all a little bit fluky. They said that they couldn't replicate what they had done. You can kind of, with your craft and your ability and your natural talent, you can work yourself up to writing good material. But something magic needs to happen for it to really pop and to be I want you to want me or or surrender or what have you. I'm thinking about uh, You Could Love a Bad Name, which is recorded once and doesn't pop and then a different version of it becomes this huge smash living on a prayer i went and found the the demo that john released years later of his original version of it which doesn't really pop the studio version obviously is i think you mentioned in your live album the state anthem of new jersey right the the national anthem of new jersey how much of that can you control i don't know if there's an answer to this question but how can you make something a hit when it just seems like it's such a fickle thing it can just come down to the recording you must have songs that you thought were sure hits that just didn't work it, because of the the recording it all starts with the song though mm-hmm. you, i mean you can you know polish up anything uh, but if the if the song isn't there the songwriting itself as a song forget about who's going to sing it then when that's paired with the right character then you have a hit script with a superstar playing it and then the scoring now you have john williams scoring it the 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 movie music sure so all those things together creates you know star wars at that point you've sort of covered your your butt it's probably going to work out for you or you know not a lot of things can go wrong mm-hmm. like behind the scenes the guy that signed the artist gets fired or kills themselves <laughs> uh, they 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 the manager has a fight with the artist and stops the artist from performing because of some, you know, lawsuit. Uh, it can go on all the problems that can happen that out of your control. But when everything lines up, and that's what Bob Crew used to tell me, a hit is like a ginormous star in the sky. And what you're looking up at is not one star. You're look, looking up at 20 stars all lined up and it creates the, you know, the nativity star. Oh, I get what you're saying. So you have to have the song. Yeah. Then the next star is the star. Then you have to have a record company that's behind it and with the production and then the record company behind it, then the publicity agent, then the agent, then the manager, then the lawyer and ev- the girlfriend, the boyfriend, everybody has to be all falling into place. And then that person can be their best. What's your process? Do you write on piano? Do you write on guitar? I'm writing when I have to because I'm lazy now on piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm a lyricist and a top, what they call a top line writer these days. You know, so well, I've heard that before. What does that mean? Means you know somebody's doing a track that's the bottom, and then the the top line is the melody and the lyrics, which is really the most important part. Anybody can put a loop together. Oh, that's right. Sort of post hip hop, these became two separate. Yeah. Yes. You couldn't have done just one or the other. Well, I guess there's right. lyrics. There were always lyrics. So, I mean, I wrote a song. I rarely write uh, by myself because I had a lonely childhood, so I prefer collaborating. Mm. Uh, but once in a while, I'll pop out a song that I wrote by myself, and I I wrote one for Barbara Streisand last year yes. called, called Lady Liberty. And, it was, you know, it was like I was asked to write a song for her by Jay Landers, her executive music supervisor and i had submitted songs to barbara streisand for 20 years none of them even got to her ears you know she you know they were just rejected 
But this time, I spent a lot of time listening to all her music and understanding how she actually is a genre of music with just one person in it, and that's her. The way those melodies that were written for her, the way those jumps work in her voice, that's the magic. And so I wrote the song that, you know, incorporated like things that, you know, the best songs that she'd sung and the best vowel, the use of vowels in her voice. And I, I locked in with everything right. And she hardly, I mean, she didn't even have a criticism. She's usually somebody that sends like 20 pages of notes. And she just loved the song as is and went in and banged it out and sang it. And it was like goosebumps every step of the way. That's incredibly methodical. She's, uh, I, I guess, more Broadway influenced than most of what has made it to pop radio. Is that a well, fair? She told me that her biggest influences were Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, you know, um, Judy Garland. You know, it's like that big singing, you know, from the from the forties and fifties. Yeah. Um, if you go to uh, the Stars Born that Judy Garland made mm-hmm. and the songs and how she sang them, it's like goosebumps. It, it's like it's like being inside out. And Barbara had the skill and the emotion and the intellectual genius to understand how to put all those elements together, as as well as her performance style with her look and everything. I mean, it was just like, it's stunning. So um, I remember first seeing her in a movie called Funny Girl. And she was going across the New York Harbor in a tugboat on her way back into the city to kind of make things happen because she realized the man she loved and she was going to make it happen. And she was singing, uh, don't rain on my parade. And she passes in front of the statue of Liberty and she's holding up a whole like a uh, group of flowers, like just like it's the torch. And those two images pass in front of each other. They made such an impression on me that when I was asked to write a song for her, um, I thought of lady Liberty and so um, the song is like one of my favorite songs I've ever written. It's, it's pretty much, it was channeled. It came through me like very quickly. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had the, the programmer in the corner waiting for me to write the song. So he sat there for two hours and then I came over and taught him the song. That was the end of it. <laughs> it doesn't seem that unusual for you to write pretty much soup to nuts very quickly. Well, you know, Stephen Tyler Wright said you wrote Angel in 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, you know, that one was a, one of those things because we had chemistry. Mm-hmm. But with this, my chemistry was with the Barbara Streisand that was inside of me, you know, that had been there my whole life. Oh, it's been marinating since. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I when I met her, I said, you know, when I first saw you in Funny Girl, I was 15 years old. You turned me gay. And she laughed really hard. She says, so many people tell me that. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, the thing is, is that the way that her emotion, the way her skill, she's really, truly, I think, the greatest singer of all time. I'm sure she's in the conversation. Without a doubt. The greatest singer. Her range and her way that she can pull back on a note and also sing loud and then bring it back and just to bring out every nugget of meaning in the lyric she's, you know, given to sing. And that's what truly makes a great artist. You don't have to write your own music, 
but you have to bring it to life when you do sing it. Uh, yeah, sure. No, of course. I've never been one of those people, you know, Elvis didn't write for the, you know, from those part, Frank Sinatra didn't write it. Aretha Franklin didn't write. So, right. you know, yeah, it's not all okay. that important to write your own, <laughs> they did okay. to write your own stuff. Um, you, you mentioned, since you touched on it, being a gay man, hair metal was famously a fairly homophobic scene. Did, did you ever, were you ever witness to any ugliness in that regard? No, because I was behind the scenes. I, I wasn't out with roadies and things um out out there so i never really was part of that um but you know one of the biggest songs i've ever written was called dude looks like a lady that's my next question i never (laughs) really thought about what it was about we all know the vince neal story but there's more to it than that so what is that song actually about no it's well i mean it really the title came out of steven tyler seeing um this gorgeous blonde at the end of a bar turns around it's vince neal so he started saying, dude looks like a lady. That dude looks like a lady. And so that was the hook. But then when I met them, they were singing Cruising for the Ladies because they had already softened the idea. And I said, that's so bad. Mm. And, you know, Joe was looking at me like, when do we throw him out? And, I, and so then Stephen said, no, but I originally sang Dude Looks Like a Lady. I said, that's a hit title. So I helped them to get through it. And if you listen to the words of that song, it has such a open, forgiving, uh, loving message, never judge a book by its cover, or who you're going to love by your lover. And, um, you know, and uh, the the character in the song doesn't run away, because, you know, goes with it, goes with the flow. So think about how long ago that was before there was even, you know, the letters GLBT, you know, (laughs) being bantered about. And so um, I... I just think that uh, because he was very androgynous looking, I thought that that him singing Do Looks Like a Lady, it was almost like people thought he was singing about himself. It made perfect sense. I just didn't think it through. It's just that, yes, Steven Tyler can sing that. A worker came up to me at our house and he said, hey, you know, you wrote with Aerosmith. You wrote my favorite song. I said, which is it? And he says, Do a Naked Lady. So... That was also a great title in its own right. But that was how he put it together because that's what he would have wanted it to say. Right. And I think that's a wonderful thing about music. Sometimes uh, you can have a lyric and it could mean one thing and then to somebody else it's completely interpreted a different way. Speaking of which, I've been wondering since I was a child and maybe I'm just an idiot and everyone else knows this. When you when uh, Bon Jovi says your very first kiss was your first kiss goodbye. What the hell does that mean? Meaning that his first kiss with her was her first kiss goodbye, meaning he got one kiss out of her and then she just dropped him. Oh, okay, yeah. Probably everybody but me figured that out. I thought it was a lot more complicated than that. The one that's really kind of complicated was the line that Stephen wrote in Dude Looks Like a Lady, which which, which is, uh, she was a long lost love at first bite. And it was like, he just loved the way that sounded. I said, but he's never met her before. And it was like, no, I want to sing that. And it's like, it kind of interrupted the flow because I was always trying to do a very direct narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, she's a long lost love at first bite. It's like, so he's been there before he knows her. Then it's no surprise when she pulls out her gun and tries to blow him away. You know, it's like, whatever. It worked. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, it's only rock and roll, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at one point, he was trying to get me to write my... Um, 
not in that song, but in, in, in like three other songs, he's trying to get in the phrase, my paycheck swallowed a trout. My paycheck swallowed a trout. Maybe he could have made it work because the, the I'm sure you know this, if I know it, the walk this way thing, right? That's a young Frankenstein quote. Really? Yeah, I guess there's a thing where the Frankenstein starts walking and they go walk this way, talk this way, and they walk out and start singing it to themselves. And that's the song. And I don't know what we all thought walk this way was about, but I definitely wasn't thinking young Frankenstein. So maybe he could have made the trout thing fly. Well, he did. And because I wouldn't I wouldn't put it in a song Uh I wrote. So he wrote it with somebody else. (laughs) And And it was like, you know. My paycheck tra- swallowed a trout. He, he actually got it in a song. Not to be denied. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, Joe Perry's reaction. It was no secret that when Desmond Child came to work with a rock band, that the rock band was probably trying to move in a more pop-oriented, radio-accessible, MTV-accessible direction. Were there ever band members who wanted you there and then other band members who maybe didn't want Desmond Child in the room writing? Well, you know... That's where charm comes in. Mm -hmm. You know, I always try to put people at ease. And I think being gay kind of put them at ease in a bit because um, they could leave me in the kitchen talking to the wife and not feel like I was going to take her away or something. You know what I'm saying? I was like the palace eunuch. Oh, (laughs) see. You know, help her like fluff some pillows and decorate while they went to their AA meeting or something, and then uh, came back and keep writing. So I was kind of became a trusted member of the palace. And so um, that kind of put people at ease. But there was a glass ceiling in a lot of these bands. They would co-write with me because being in co-writing, we were kind of equals. Mm-hmm. But producing, when you're a producer, then that's the moment when the producer is the boss. Right. And the artist, if he doesn't let go and let the producer produce, they don't do their best. You know, the people that try to produce and do themselves, they overthink things and they, they, they're not doing well. So, but they wouldn't put their, they wouldn't let a gay guy dick slap them into submission. You know, you could co-write, but you couldn't. I couldn't be the producer. So they would give me, you know, the record companies wouldn't give me the bands. They gave me, you know. Share, they gave me Ronnie Spector. Mm-hmm. They gave you got me, Alice Cooper. You produced that, Alice, album, right? Yeah, Alice Cooper. That's not a band. There were solo artists. Oh, you know, and so um, that was kind of like the the kind of the glass ceiling. And then later on, you know, I I did produce some bands, but it wasn't until much later I produced Scorpions, an album called uh, Humanity Hour One, mm-hmm. and the Rasmus Black Roses. Um, I can't even think of ever producing other bands other than those two. And I've already been touching it earlier, but there must have been times where you heard the production come back and you go, oh, man, this could have been this could have been better. I was thinking of like what it takes to me is that's my favorite Aerosmith ballad. It's just a beautiful, beautiful song. And I think well, that the production sells the crap out of well, it. Well, but anything that Bruce Fairburn produced was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And it was a real shame that he passed away too young. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, those bands kind of, you know. They never really found producers like that, a producer like that. So I was never disappointed. In fact, his vision of Angel was way beyond what I had conceived, you know. And um, so I learned a lot, and I'm a good collaborator, so it's okay. You take the lead, you do it. But in many cases, I felt like I had to produce because it was a way of making more money. Mm -hmm. 
and um, you know I could double my efforts and also make sure it came out well. And I'm a really good uh, comper of vocals, you know, taking all these tracks, weaving them into something that sounds natural and breathing and emotional. You mean literally the singer does a bunch of different takes of the song yeah. and you're taking this line and then marrying it to that line from this other take. Or more than a line. Uh, less than a line. Oh, I see. Like how about a syllable? You're taking those Barbra Streisand about, vowels. <laughs> with her, I didn't have to do that. I'm sure. But, uh, you know, uh, with a lot of artists, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of work. Alice Cooper sounded like a glossy late 80s hair metal MTV ready rock singer, which I, I imagine took a little bit of, of work with all due respect to him. No, I mean, I, I think he said I made him his throat bleed. Yet he, he said, uh, working with Desmond Child, I, mm-hmm. I, he made me cough blood <laughs> because I'd make him do it over and over and over again until I had just the right texture. Other than the title, not the title track, other than Poison, my favorite song from that album is uh, Hell is Living Without You. You've written so many songs. Is that even, do you even remember that song? No. <laughs> no, but the Go other, back and listen to it. I but think the you'll other, like it. The other day I was listening to a song in a grocery store and I said, God, who is that Bon Jovi copycat? Uh-huh. And it was like a song I had co-written on Slippery Call Without Love or something. Mm-hmm. And it was like, what? Because I didn't even remember the verse or anything it was like all of a sudden i recognized his voice but that i thought it was somebody else trying to copy him you know <laughs> that's was really funny. it's your own song i guess you've done yeah. so many we haven't even touched on I'm pretty much out of time uh kelly clarkson leanne rhymes ricky martin yeah how does that come together well um i had after the northridge earthquake my husband and i moved to miami beach where i grew up and um you know big mansions were going for like nothing you know on the water and so we bought one, and uh, then we started going to salsa lessons, and and uh, I got back into my Cuban roots. My mother was a Cuban songwriter, and my family's always been in show business and in Latin side. And um, I heard about this kid that was crossing over from Latin wanted to from Latin to to the American market, and he was a star. Everybody kept saying, "You got to work with this guy." He was on a, you know, kind of. Uh, soap opera he was in Le Mis uh, General Hospital he was in Le Mis on Broadway and uh, I had all these friends saying no this is the guy you got to work with so I we got together and he came with Draco Rosa his producer songwriter and uh, we just had the chemistry and we, we right off wrote the World Cup theme the Cup of Life for 1998 France versus Brazil and they had the game in France and lucky for me France won because the crowd went crazy and uh, that became an instant number one in 23 countries that, that day. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> that's the thing. And so then we just kept working and then uh, they wanted me to write a song that was uh, Spanglish. And that's the one he did on, on the Grammys. It was in Spanish. You know, right? Oh, I, the performance, right. yeah, a yeah. Cup of life, you know, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Madonna went crazy, all this, and so they said, "Oh, we need another single that's sort of lively like that." So they said, "But it has to be Spanglish. It has to be English and Spanish." So I wrote, I, I like racked my brains for three days coming up with the lyrics because I started thinking, like, what is it that everybody understands? And I started uh, thinking, thinking about El Pollo Loco, Loco. Loco, loca, la vida loca. And that's how I came up with that. And then I delivered it to the, uh, to the records, 
uh, company. And they said, okay, it sounds amazing. Now, can you write an English version? And it's like, it is in English. Right. It how, only many has, word, how many words are in, in Spanish? It, it only had three words in Spanish because <laughs> even skin's the color of mocha. Of course, yeah. No, That's, it rhymes mo- with it. Mocha is yeah. not a Spanish word. And so uh, when, the, when, the, when the ad came out in Billboard full page, it said, live in La Vida Loca, kind of small. And then in big letters, it said, live in the crazy life. Just in case you were wondering. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that song went number one. And, you know, it was, it was the thing that ignited the Latin music explosion. Oh, yeah. Has it been... I don't know if bittersweet is the word over the years. You make these songs and then other people get to stand in front of 20,000 people and have them scream for them. Well, you know, I had always wanted to be a star. I still do. Not giving up on my dream. Um, <laughs> doesn't matter how old I get. Um, but the thing is, is that a lot of things happened and I didn't really have the confidence when it came down to it. it you know, I was very thin skinned, very insecure. I had a very troubled childhood. A lot of those things surface because when you, you know, go on something like this, like people are mean, you know? Sure. Like the things that I hear my stars saying that people said and did to them, it's like, they'll do that to share. Are you kidding me? You know, like the, the, the audacity of mm-hmm. how they're treated and they have to develop such thick skins. I never had thick skin. I'm just like, and maybe that's one of my gifts because I'm so empathetic and so emotional that I'm of service to them. And it's much easier to see what somebody should do than to see what you should do. Right. You have the perspective on it. Yeah. And so it turned out that, you know, I've sold over 500 million records and in my streams and, and, um, whatever, you know, downloads that go into the billions Uh and my songs, the songs I wrote, most of them collaborated with but the songs I wrote on have become more famous than the people that did them because you can go into the jungle and somebody can recognize you know a song I wrote but they don't know who sang it that's so, right you it know it becomes part of just the fabric just of, the, of culture. the world of right. the world and so I feel satisfied in that way because I've reached billions of people with my music and I could not have done that being an artist yeah well said. Well, I'm very excited that you're getting a, a victory lap by doing this live album. I, I yes. listened to it. I enjoyed it. It's great to hear. As I said, I love songwriters. I love songwriting. It's great to hear. I loved your version of Angel. It's nice to hear the songwriter make the song. Thank you so much. So the album is called uh, Desmond Child Live, and I'm looking forward to this book of yours whenever it comes out. Thank you very much. Uh, Desmond Child. <laughs> 